Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. If you've been enjoying mental models, this podcast, and the types of biases and thought strategies we employ and advocate for here, please make sure to acquire our book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, and bias has a dollar sign for the S. It's available on Amazon, and you could really do us a favor by leaving a review if you like that book and uh, choose to buy it. Yeah, we do take a fair amount of time to put these uh, podcasts together, and we want to know that it actually is meaningful, and it's something that people really enjoy. And if you really do enjoy the podcast, it would be very helpful to see your support through a purchase of our book. It's kind of like the uh, PBS pledge drive, uh, so to speak. Right. And it would improve our mental model of ourselves and how we're doing to get a little bit of feedback. So we appreciate it. We're back with another episode of the Mental Models podcast. And uh, today I'm going to recap a little bit of what we've seen this last year, the S&P 500. Uh, I believe, closed out with a total return north of 30%. And uh, uh, those are the best returns, I believe, that we've since, seen since 2013. So, you know, a good six years. And the second best returns that we've seen during the course of the cycle. I think we talked a little bit about macro before on the podcast, and I expressed some of my caution. And this really highlights as to why you shouldn't pay any attention to macro. Well, I think that was back in uh, late summer of 2019. We're now recording this very early in 2020. So it's a good time to uh, reflect and maybe share some projections on what's going to happen in the coming year. Yeah. So, I, you know, projections, difficult. But when we think about what happened in the last year, coming into the year, there was a lot of uh, skepticism and fear. There'd been about a 20% drawdown from the peak of the market in 2018 uh, to the bottom right before Christmas of last year. And uh, the amount of bearishness or skepticism was quite high. We actually saw the multiple of the S&P come down to about 15 and a half times uh, from a peak of, a, of nearly 19 times earnings. Uh, and that's just simply taking the current level of the S&P Uh, and dividing it by its earnings. And when we look at where we've come since then, there's been a very small increase in earnings uh, over the last 12 months. It's contributed about 2% of the move we've seen in the market and for the total return. The remainder was uh, just the expansion of the multiple. Multiple is back up to about 19 times for the S&P. So I thought it would be interesting to step back and think about, you know, why there was uh, some concern and why perhaps we've seen this concern dissipate and the multiple uh, rise so significantly for the market. There's a couple of things. One, coming into the year, the Federal Reserve under Jay Powell was restrictive. We had been raising interest rates coming in uh, throughout 2018. Powell suggested that. Uh, there would be more interest rates rises to come in 2018, and that uh, the decrease in the Fed's balance sheet, where the Fed was actually going out and no longer buying bonds, that would be on autopilot. 
And that, of course, led to pretty significant sell-off in December when you don't have much liquidity to begin with. A lot of people tend to call the year early, and there's just not as much volume in the market. And then that reversed sharply when Powell suggested that they would uh, stop increasing rates at the beginning of the year and that they would stop decreasing the Fed's balance sheet. And then ultimately, the Fed started lowering interest rates and uh, then also started increasing the balance sheet to deal with issues that were arising in the money market. Basically, they were going into the overnight repo market and they were increasing liquidity uh, in that market because there'd been a discontinuity, a disconnect, where those rates started climbing significantly because of the necessity for corporations to pay taxes and they're drawing on, on overnight funds. But essentially what that means is the Fed engaged in QE again. Now, they say specifically that they did not. They, you know, they stepped into the market and they purchased short-term repo paper. Uh, flushing the market with more cash, that cash has to go somewhere. And I believe it ended up in the stock market, resulting in an increase in the multiple. At the same point in time, we had a long inversion of the yield curve. Uh, And historically, whenever you've had the yield curve invert greater than 25 basis points for over a month period of time, over six weeks, uh, within the next year or so, it's typically followed by a recession. It was one of the features we talked about some months back. Plus, if you look at ISM numbers, which are the manufacturing surveys, they were in recessionary territory. They continue to be. There was a new ISM that just came out this last week uh, that was quite negative. Rail traffic is down uh, mid-single digits, uh, excluding coal. And you know, rail tends to be something like the arteries of the industrial economy. At the same point in time, you've seen a lot of weakness in uh, things like copper. Uh, You'd seen weakness in pulp prices. A lot of things that are kind of indicative of economic activity. On the other side, the consumer has been very, very strong. Unemployment rates have been very low and continuing to decline. Uh, And the consumer is 70% of the economy. So that strength has been able to overshadow the weakness that we've seen in the industrial economy. We had a couple of events that had passed that did not come to fruition. One was Brexit. Uh, There was a threat that uh, we would see Great Britain exit in a disorderly way from the euro, and that could have global implications on financial markets. That did not come to fruition. And when that was taken off the table, some of that eased. And then, of course, trade, which it seems like a lot of the fluctuations that we've seen in the market have just been uh, variations of progress or weakness uh, associated with the trade agreement. So in that backdrop, once we got to the point where it's, you know, it seemed like some of those risks were off the table and you had the Fed being accommodative, that allowed multiples to continue to expand to the point where they are today, which is at a, the high end of the range that we've seen. So Basically, that resulted in a 30% increase in the stock market. You had negative sentiment coming into the year. So a lot of people were on one side of the boat. You had uh, some of the risks that were feared come off, but you didn't see any earnings growth. Earnings growth was tepid. Now, if you're going to see any significant increase in the stock market for the next year, either you need to see some continued expansion of the multiple beyond where it has been since the crisis, you know, since we, we had the crisis 10 years ago, or you need to see uh, earnings increase. And it's going to be difficult for earnings to increase because 
as the labor market has gotten tighter, we have seen increases in wages, which tends to put pressures on, pressure on margins. Uh, and uh, we're also likely to see margin pressures. Oil prices, quietly, nobody's really spoken about this, but they're up 50% year over year, uh, or 40%. Also, you've seen uh, increasing uh, protein prices, which I think will become much more acute as we go through this year. When you have inflation, inflation tends to be the precursor of the end of a cycle. Almost every cycle, there's a spike in oil prices right before the cycle is over. Um, and that inflation leads to the Fed having to be uh, more restrictive. When the Fed is more restrictive, that tends to mean that there is more pressure on the flow of money into assets, and uh, we start to see the other end of a tightening cycle. Um, here, it's so much more difficult, though, because from a secular standpoint, uh, we're in a different world. This is the longest expansion that we've had. And uh, we're just now entering into the point where it's exceeded what we saw in, from 1990 to 2000. Uh, so the question is, is how long can this expansion be sustained? And I would argue that it's possible that we could see it go on a lot longer. And it has gone on a lot longer than people expect. In part, it's because the growth has been very tepid. Historically, from 1981 until uh, really the financial crisis. So in 1982, total credit in the United States, you take you know, all corporate debt, all personal household debt, all federal government debt, all debt, uh, with the exception of bank debt, was about 150% of GDP. In 2009, it peaked at 380% of GDP. When we think about gross domestic product, what is it? Well, really, it's the total amount deduced. And a very simplistic way to break down gross domestic product is to go and look at the total hours that are worked and the productivity. So if I go and I incur debt, say, you know, I borrow money and I buy a new car, well, that, the creation of that car is gross domestic product, right? There was a bunch of hours that were put into it, and there was, there was some productivity associated with building that car. Now, the debt that I've borrowed, presumably I've got to repay it at some point in time, which would mean that I would take the production that I have, and instead of using it to go and stimulate somebody else's production, I'm paying off an obligation that I have for the future. So when we incur indebtedness, it essentially pulls GDP forward. So from uh, 1982 to 2009, a significant amount of the growth that we had in the country was just increased indebtedness. And uh, now that has gone from 380% of GDP to about 250% of GDP. We've seen a pretty significant decline and household indebtedness in the United States in terms of, as a percentage of GDP. Uh, we've seen, uh, now there's par pockets of that that have increased significantly. Mortgage debt as a percentage of GDP is way down. But uh, if we look at student loan debt, you know, that's more than doubled uh, over the course of that period. So there, there are definitely some imbalances in there. But on a whole, households are not as levered as they were during the financial crisis. Corporate debt has gone up significantly, and largely that's just because there is a uh, pretty significant 
uh, difference in the cost of debt versus the cost of equity. So equity, if you look at it in terms of yield, uh, in a lot of cases, that is more expensive than debt is. So corporations have gone out into the market, they've borrowed money, buy back their shares, and they're just levering up in the, in the process of doing that. And then the, the baton has been passed to some degree to the government to make up for the lack of demand that you have in the household sector, sector and in the banking sector, because our finance debt has come in significantly as well. Now, this is just in the United States. Um, so basically what that is, is that is a draw. Uh, and Reinhardt and Rogoff uh, wrote a book called uh, This Time It's Different, and it's a fantastic analysis of delevering and levering periods throughout history. And their suggestion is, is that when you go through a delevering period, which is what we've started since the financial crisis, it's about a 1% drag on GDP. Well, so that's interesting. When we look at the growth of GDP throughout this cycle for the last 10 years, it has been tepid on an annual basis. It used to be that you would see GDP growth from on a, you know, and there's two different ways to look at GDP growth. There's, there's real GDP, which is X-inflation, um, and that averages, has averaged for, for this cycle about 2% a year. Uh, and then there's nominal GDP, is which, which is with the inflation. And that's been somewhere in the neighborhood of 4% a year because inflation has been about 2% a year. In the past, uh, inflation would go up to 4 or 5%. Um, and, uh, you know, you'd get nominal growth of somewhere in the neighborhood of 6 or 7%. So pretty significant nominal growth in prior cycles. Uh, this cycle, we've not seen that. And if you think about a tepid growth cycle and, and how a cycle typically works, when things are going better and you get, you know, the unemployment rate goes down. Now, when you think about unemployment, if we, if we hold the contention that GDP is hours work plus product, times productivity, uh, a component of hours work is how many people are working. That's a big component. And when we see unemployment rates go from 6 or 7% down to, you know, today, uh, what I guess we're at uh, 3.5%. When you see unemployment rates go down like that, each point of uh, movement is growth in GDP, right, as we continue to have more people come into the workforce. Well, or, and not just come into the workforce, but then to be, be employed. Well, when you get to the point where it gets very tight, then there's not that incremental amount of growth to be added. Uh, and as growth accelerates throughout uh, the cycle, you have businesses that have to add productivity or productive resources. They have to make investment uh, in their businesses to add capacity. And typically what happens late in the cycle is they overshoot. They add too much capacity for uh, the amount of growth that's actually realized in the future and growth stalls because there's not incremental people to enter into the workforce. Wages rise, prices have to rise. That has an effect on demand. And uh, ultimately what happens is you recess. Well, if growth is only at a nominal basis, 4% a year, that's very manageable. It's very easy for you to avoid overshooting. 
right? You can just add incremental investment at a very low rate. There's been a lot talked about very tepid investment throughout this cycle. So you're, you're not stretching. You're not ending up in a point where you're creating too much capacity uh, for the amount of demands that are creating that bubble, uh, that air pocket that then results in ultimately recession. And presumably, when you do have a recession, it should probably be pretty mild, you would think, because you won't have a huge amount of excess capacity that's out there that has to be absorbed coming into the next cycle. And does that fit with the thesis put forward in that uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff book, This Time is Different? Yeah, I think their conclusion, and it's difficult because the world has changed significantly many times over. Uh, like, for instance, instances of negative interest rates, we've never had negative interest rates because one of the responses has been to print money to avoid uh, the, the deflationary effects of winding down credit. Um, so, you know, I, I, don't, I don't believe that was part of their thesis, but it seems to be the way that things are, are playing out. So when I look at the market, and it's very difficult, and, and the reason why, uh, and we've titled this, um, you know, market macro nonsense. It is almost impossible to make money off of any of this, this thought uh, because you're talking about such big brush strokes and, such, and macro variables that are very, very difficult to quantify. There were a lot of very, very smart people, Druckenmiller being one of them, also uh, the head of Bridgewater. You had a lot of names, a lot of big folks that are well-recognized for macro analysis that said in 2020, we're definitely having a recession. And uh, it's just very difficult to, to look at the current circumstance and make that analysis because I can justify either side. So for instance, and I think we talked about this last time, if we look at the current earnings yield at 18 times or so uh, for the stock market, typically the stock market trades at a multiple that's about 1.3 turns uh, that is higher than the current yield of the 10-year. The 10-year is at 1.9, right? So if I take uh, 1.9 and I add 1.3, right, I get 3.2. So basically that's uh, the yield that you would expect, 3.2. So uh, you know, if I take 1 divided by 0 0.032, that would be 31 times that would be justified for the multiple of the market, right? And right now we're at 18. So I could look at that when I look at the 10-year as the basis for uh, providing my multiple that I want to apply to the market, I put the historic premium that's typically applied for the equity market. Now, you know, this is the proverbial uh, stream that is you know, on average, uh, four feet deep, right? Well, you can drown in that stream because an average is a collection of different numbers at different times. So there's a lot of variation around that. But if we just take the, the mean of the premia that typically is applied uh, to earnings relative to the 10-year, then the market would justifiably be, uh, you, you could have it at 31 times earnings. So that's another, you know, 50, 60% higher than where it is today, if you assume that the 10-year is appropriately priced. Alternatively, if we normalize the margin back to a historical place, because margins are high right now, um, and we uh, 
and, and this bond yield is not a correct reflection of, you know, we start to see inflation, for instance, and say that 10-year goes up to, say, 4%, right? Well, then we have a very different picture. And you, you could see the market come under a lot, of, a lot of pressure on that end. It's very difficult because a lot of it's going to key off of, off of bond rates, which are difficult to predict. You know, you've had an inversion of the yield curve. Historically, when you've had one, for the, for the depth that we've had, for the length that that happened, it always results in, in a recession within 18 months. How do you play that? And if you look at sentiment today, is quite bullish. You know, the market's up significantly. People are feeling quite flush, right? They're feeling like, you know, that you want to own stocks. Uh, and that typically tends to, from a contrarian standpoint, tends to be a point in time uh, that's a lot more dangerous. So what does that mean? What should you do? Should you go long or should you go short? I have no answer. What I will say is that the environment is very different than the one that I think we've seen in the past where you have a typical cycle. Hence, we've had one that has been able to go on for a lot longer and potentially could continue to go on for a lot longer. And at the same point in time, you know, if you look at a Schiller PE, for instance, the market's extremely expensive. Uh, but there are arguments as to why a Schiller PE doesn't make any sense in this context. Margins will be higher in companies now than they've ever been and will continue to be that way because you have a lot more the construct of the economy. If you look in the 1970s and the 1980s, the United States was a much more manufacturing-based economy. Today, it's a much more services-oriented economy. It's a much more technology-oriented economy. And when you have that, those tend to have higher margin. Well, I think you've offered a lot of handholds and footholds for someone to pull on or look at in terms of projecting. And you've also underscored why it's so difficult to make a projection of, of what and when, um, given these multiple factors that are behaving just differently than they have historically. The way I view it is, is I think these things are always interesting to look at. And it's interesting uh, thought to have, to explore. But nobody seems to be able to make money on it empirically, right? Nobody's been able to effectively call. Now, you can, you can make a call, and that happens to result in you making money, and you can be the lucky monkey that manages to flip the coin over and over again and hit the right call, heads or tails. I think trying to extrapolate a narrative where you can see a pattern and take advantage of it out of these facts, people have tried over and over again, and they just result in failure. What you should focus on is those things that you can know. So if you can find something that's discreet with respect to an issue, you know, you're the one that goes and sees that the Hydro Flask is the, is the latest, hottest thing. And you can buy Helen of Troy, right, early on in 2019 because you identify this trend that you can see that's definitely going to affect their business uh, and get in front of that. You can make money with that. Um, if you can identify uh, IMO 2020, a change in regulation that occurred for shipping, uh, that effectively requires shippers to use a, a lower sulfur content fuel, opposed to the old bunker fuel, that'll reduce the amount of ships that are able to uh, actually be on the water uh, and therefore driving up day rates significantly, then you can take advantage of that. You know, identifying small idiosyncratic opportunities in the market, I think that is something that is uh, where, where you can take that and get in excess of market returns. But trying to look at the big macro picture 
and drive an investment strategy in light of that, that I don't, I don't think you can do. Okay, that's very well put. So we will conclude there, and uh, we'll link in the show notes to Reinhardt and Rogoff's This Time It's Different book. And uh, we'll revisit this topic in uh, several months' time later in 2020, and we'll see if it's different. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.